Welcome to Encouraging Change, a podcast that explores the relationship between motivational interviewing and peer recovery support. Your hosts, Laura Saunders and Chris Kelly, will engage in a conversation that combines their professions and passions, the spirit of motivational interviewing, and the power of peer support. Laura is a Wisconsin State Project Manager for the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, and a seasoned motivational interviewing trainer. Chris is a project manager for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence and an expert on peer recovery support services. So thank you for joining us today and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode number 12, Promoting Leadership and Advocacy. Today, Chris and I are thrilled to have a guest. We have Tim Saubers, the Program Coordinator for Workforce Development at the Peer Center of Excellence. And so in order to start our session today, Tim, I'd like you to, I'd like to invite you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Definitely. Thanks, Laura. Like you said, my name is Tim Saubers. I use he, him, his pronouns. I am a person with lived experience with both mental health and substance use. For me, I don't choose to use the language around uh, naming as a person in recovery. My language doesn't work for me, so I prefer to just stick with a person with lived experience. I've been involved in peer work for about five years now, uh, since 2016, uh, doing direct service crisis work, supervisory work, um, running Wisconsin certification program for peer specialists and parent peer specialists and currently working with the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence on workforce development. So a lot of that work centers on technical assistance requests, looking at certification processes, pay and benefits equity, looking at career ladder development and sustainable career kind of investment, as well as doing trainings, communities of practice, learning collaboratives, really looking at how can we take a large scale approach to supporting and expanding the peer workforce across the country. You've done so much to promote peer services, so we're thrilled to have you today. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I was telling Chris that this is this has been like a dream of mine to do something like this, so I'm very, very excited to be here with you guys. Well, and I appreciate you being here, and I know I told you this before we jumped on this call, but when I think of leadership and advocacy, I think of you because you demonstrate that in all the work you've done, and so I saw the work you were doing in Wisconsin, and now I'm seeing it at the Center of Excellence. Tim lives and breathes leadership and advocacy on many different levels. So again, we're relating how does motivational interviewing fit into the core competencies for peer support? And so when we think of advocacy, we often, as peers, first think of that direct service level of advocacy, advocating with someone or on someone's behalf. And today I wanted to bring you in and talk about that upward looking advocacy and where do peers play a part in that? From your framework, what work do you think needs to be done? Like, where are we as a field and and how can we be advocating like that big A advocacy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I I think we're really at kind of a, a turning point in the field of peer support. In a lot of ways, I feel like we've gone kind of as far as we can right now as looking at the work through an individualistic lens. I think there's been a really strong push when we're looking at macro scale work for like 
how can I get this one organization to pay equitably and give equitable benefits and develop supervisory positions? Or how can I get it for myself as an individual so that I get paid well? And there hasn't been as much work as there could be to take a more collectivist approach to say, how do I understand success in advocacy to be more than just me receiving equitable pay and benefits, but everybody in the field receiving that? Um, and I think a lot of the work that needs to be done there can't be done as individuals. I don't think that we're going to, I, mean, I guess I shouldn't say can't, but could be done more effectively through a collectivist approach that takes into account what diverse communities need. I appreciate you saying that you look at me as someone who really kind of breathes leadership. But what I always think about is that it's is the community that's behind me. I think often in times in spaces that I go into and in work that I've tried to do, there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of resistance and fear to talk about equity, diversity, justice, to talk about pay raises and benefits and, and the work that needs to be done, the practical steps that need to be taken to get there. You know, we've talked about like unionizing or looking at really collective approaches to the workforce, taking back some power for itself. And there's a lot of fear in talking about those things. And so advocating for them and speaking up about them oftentimes results in people pushing back and having a strong community that I can fall back into to catch me has been really critical to being able to continue to show up and talk about those things. And having that community has really taught me that leadership and peer work isn't about one person, just me showing up at the table over and over again. It's about how do I bring these communities that are supporting me and working with me along with me into these new spaces so that we can advocate together for a change that will benefit all of us and not just so that I, I get the opportunity to, to build a strong resume. Right, right. It's that sharing the wealth. I always have that image of as we get lifted up, that we're, we're constantly bringing others with us and that it isn't always just an opportunity for us to move into new spaces. I love how you phrase that. It's we're bringing the community that we're working with with us into those new spaces. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really important too to touch on a lot of the work that is starting nationally, that if we're, if we're really looking towards building recovery-oriented systems, we can't not talk about diversity and equity in those conversations. I mean, those two things are so intertwined. And again, just knowing your work, I've seen a lot of that. You advocating and building leadership in a lot of those spaces and reminding people that recovery orientation isn't just about oh, recovery-friendly language, low-hanging fruit. It, it means we have to be open to reflective practices for ourselves and ensure that the culture of our organization is practicing these things as well, not just applying it to, the, to others. Yeah, and I think um, I also, I think there's just that next step that's needed of we've all done a lot of training and there's been a lot of awareness building but how do we take that next step into implementation of change, right? I think we see this a lot with like trauma-informed care and even with motivational interviewing, right? You could, any peer specialist, anyone in the field will say, I know motivational interviewing, but <laughs> do you really, right? Having done one training, is that enough to be able to say, I can implement this well enough to be up to the standards of like the best practice for the evidence base, right? And I think we see similar things with equity, with even with peer work itself, 
Um, we have a lot of spaces saying like, I've done this one training or I know what it is, but to actually implement peer work in, in a really effective ways, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. And like you said, it takes a lot of intensive personal and organizational reflection about not just can we provide peer services, but do we have the policies, procedures, the structures to employ a peer specialist in an equitable and supportive way? And I think that ties into like equity and justice and leadership work. I just think there's a lot of opportunity for people to get out of the way, including myself. Uh, you know, and when we did a lot of the equity work in Wisconsin, one of the first things we did was a contract with an outside consultant that we knew and had worked with and who was a leader in, in black communities in Madison to say, we wanna do this work. Neither of myself or the person I was working with at the time were black. And so it just wasn't appropriate for us to be leading the implementation of black specific services, right? Or trainings. And so I think when it comes to leadership as well, knowing when to step aside and, and pay somebody else to do this work, I think the paying piece is a really important piece as well. Um, it just is so critical to equity work, right? It doesn't always have to be the people in charge right now. It can be the people actually from the community coming in to share that knowledge in a way where they're, they're, they're being compensated properly. There's, there's so much of what you've been talking about, Tim, that just harkens back to how important it is to have those motivational interviewing skills. You were talking about, you know, people's assumptions about what it, what motivational interviewing is and, and whether or not they're really using it. And that's certainly something we've been talking about this entire series is little bits and pieces of motivational interviewing and how it aligns with so much of the peer work. And I also am struck with how much the skills that one learns in motivational interviewing are so necessary for that advocacy role. And, and that, that having a, a good grasp of motivational interviewing can really help bolster your, your ability to be an advocate, right? Like when you learn what it's like to really listen, you know, like in terms of implementation, like what is people's what is people's willingness to take on a, the, a peer into their agency and what's holding them back? Being empathic to the stuff that's holding them back, not feeling like you need to argue against it or that a ton of facts are going to change. You know, like if I tell you all the facts about this, you're going to change your mind. Like being empathic to that and then also capitalizing on, well, let's talk about the, the things that you do think it could work and let me present to you in a way that you can take in this information about how peers really work, how that can be of, of, of benefit to your agency. So that listening, that recognition of, of change language, being empathic to that sometimes people are stuck. And the other thing is, is that one thing about the practice of motivational interviewing is its ability to demonstrate how important it is to be culturally humble. Mm-hmm. Everything I need to know about another person, everything I need to know about this agency or this person's willingness to even entertain the possibility of bringing a peer into our, you know, purview, that all of the that comes from that person. I'm not going to make any assumptions. I'm not going to make assumptions. And so by us modeling that stuff, being able, being really facile and up to speed with those skills can really be a benefit to the advocacy role. Oh yeah. And I think 
what stands out to me quite a bit with with MI skills as well is the reflective statement piece, particularly when it comes to advocating. I think if you've been able to to go into community and really, you know, use some effective open questions, really listen to what the community is saying, and then be able to reflect back to to the community. This is what you guys are telling me that you want to see, whether it's in this program, at, you know, at the legislative level, whoever, wherever, whatever space you're going into, use a community or saying this is what you want to see done. There's so much power to be found in that to be able to go into that space and to feel not just I'm here as an individual representing my own interests, but to be able to say, I've gone into community, I've reflected back to them what they want to see. They've said, yes, that's correct. So I'm showing up with that community support in this space with these people who have huge amounts of power, whether it's state level committees or national work groups, whoever it is, but to be able to come in and say, we've done the work, we've used the skills. This is what the community says that they wanna see and I can hold firm and fast to that, knowing that I've used these skills in a way that set me up for success in this space, or at least yeah. to feel like I, I have the, the ability to stand firm in what I'm coming to the table saying, this is what the workforce needs. That skill of reflective listening keeps you from just making assumptions that you know the other person means. Oh, yeah, I heard that. I got it. Yeah. And then, but when you take the time to accurately reflect or to offer an accurate reflection, that, that that's where true empathy really happens and true understanding. Mm -hmm. I, I can't be your advocate. I can't guide this process if what I think you said isn't what you really intended it to mean. Well, and I think it's so crucial as well, particularly when, when um, we look at who's at the table. You know, I was often uh, on, a, on a variety of work groups and showing up in spaces where it was me, a cisgender, a gay Latino man, trying to show up and, and advocate alongside and on behalf of everybody, right? Which I can't represent everyone, I'm not in every community. And so it was great to be able to go into those different communities and, and be able to ask like, what do you need? Tell me what you need and let me go and support you guys in accessing that. And not only does it lend itself, I think to really genuine advocacy work that stays true to what the community wants, but it also lends itself to then building greater coalition and support, right? If you can come back and show the community, we didn't just listen, we didn't just reflect, we actually made change based on what you guys said you wanted and needed. It lends itself to then them then feeling like, okay, this is a program I can continue to engage with. This is maybe a certification that I'm gonna get now that I see that they're listening to me. Um, I think it lends itself to longer term collaboration as well. Uh, when we move out of the, what what do systems want for their outcomes and and you know grant reporting and more into what is the community actually saying that they want to see this program doing and how do we do that yeah putting out there that real sense of partnership mm -hmm. i can represent you and i have ideas about things that i see that could be beneficial and then you as the community, you as the agency, you as this individual, you also bring a level of expertise. And I'm nothing if I don't also honor what your expertise is, what you're bringing. And so it's that that ever important part of motivational interviewing is partnership, partnership yeah. acceptance, compassion. And then you've talked about being genuinely curious. I, I can't make assumptions about this community. I can't make assumptions about this agency. I have to be, I have to bring my genuine sense of curiosity, not just my own personal lens for all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And there's some internal work as well that needs to be done, right? When I'm going into work with these communities, where are my biases? Where is where is my upbringing coming into play? What am I bringing into this space? Um, and how do I how am I prepared to navigate through those feelings? Um, particularly when when groups want to do things, you know, like you said, sometimes we come in like I have ideas about what I think could be best, especially when we're in positions of power or or leading organizations or groups or programs that can feel like I know what this is supposed to look like. And then you go into work with specific communities and those communities say, I don't want any part of that, but here's what I want to see instead. Being able to stay humble and reflective to say like, okay, you know, what that core value of peer work, multiple pathways, right? Just because they don't want to do it the way that I thought was best for peer work doesn't mean that it's not going to work. And maybe yep. this is the best way for them. So when I think about advocacy as well, I often think about what is my goal here showing up in these spaces? Is it to just bring peer work into these communities and say, here's peer support? Or is it to really go in and say, I wanna support you as a community in building resources that work best for you guys. And if that includes peer support, that's great. If it doesn't, I, I don't, I'm not leaving just because you've chosen a different pathway. You know, there's still ways for us to work together. Seeking collaboration and honoring autonomy. Mm-hmm. It's your choice. You get to you're you're you you're an equal partner in this process, and then in the end, you get to decide. I can I can only make recommendations, and you get to decide because you know best. Mm-hmm. And really looking at that through the lens of that that's still a successful positive outcome. Um, yes, right? it's not <laughs> it's not a negative outcome just because they chose something else. Are there spaces, Tim? This is almost a rhetorical question, but <laughs> when is, or can you think of times where you'd say motivational interviewing is not appropriate in leadership or advocacy and or advocacy? I think sometimes, I guess I don't know if I would ever go as far as to say not not appropriate. I think there are sometimes where there are limits to what I'm willing to explore or entertain with someone. Um, you know, when there are major value differences around you know like what is considered recovery or somebody coming in with with ideals or or wanting to say like in the work that I do there is space for somebody who holds very racist values or who holds very homophobic values I don't want to explore with that person what that means to them if I'm in a space where I'm meant to be advocating for the workforce or for greater access to services or for equity if that person holds that value to me as an individual, I just don't have the capacity or to, to go into that space with that person. So while I don't think that they're not appropriate, I will say for me, there are limits in terms of when I'm willing to employ those skills and the energy that I'm willing to invest in trying to learn more about what, what that person wants. I think a lot about um, something that uh, I believe was Dr. Nadia Richardson from No More, no More Martyrs talks about, um, and she talked about this, I don't know if it was her idea, but the first time that I ever heard it talked about was from her in 2019. And she talks about knowing when to get up from the table um, and knowing when to hold compassion for yourself and say, investing my energy into this space as a leader, as an advocate, it isn't working anymore. And it's time to, to step away and, and put my energy somewhere else. And I think sometimes in those situations, it, it can feel like I've, I've used all the skills that I have available to learn more about this group and it's just not gonna work for me. So I'm going to exit. Yeah, yeah. well, I can imagine that. I love, I just love the way you phrased that about getting up from the table and 
think that's a tough one for us as peers, as advocates. I mean, advocacy is a lot of times in our blood. Um, we do this work to change the outcome for the people who are coming down the road after us. And so that can be really difficult to say if this isn't a space for me to be in anymore. Um, yeah. yeah. It's about motivational interviewing says to be compassionate. And it's real hard to be compassionate if you're not also self-compassionate first, if you're not doing your self-care things. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I think sometimes we end up in these situations where it feels like you're advocating forever and you're not seeing change. And so then it turns into, I'm not a good advocate. Yes. When the reality is this space isn't set up for change. And I think when we can separate those two things, and just like you said, Laura, understand that saying it's time to get up is holding self-compassion, it really changes how we show up in other advocacy spaces and how we show up as leaders um, when we know that I am here to be an advocate and show up and maybe I'll take some pushback, which I think is reasonable. There are also limits to how I'm going to let you treat me and speak to me and, and what I'm going to experience in this space, right? Well, the last thing I want to ask you is really forward thinking. And I love like the magic wand question. So like when you're dreaming big, what, what do you envision for the, the peer support community? I would love to see an expanded understanding of what peer support is and means. Right now, the way that the service is looked at is that it's the, I mean, almost exclusively the certifications are mental health, substance use, or both together in one certification. And I would love to see that expanded to include more. I think there's so much exceptional work that's being done that's centered on the lived experience of being queer, being the center point for the peer service or the lived experience of indigeneity or blackness. There's so much organic support that is considered peer support that's centered on these lived experiences and others that are not related to mental health or substance use that I think by having the certifications only cover those two things, we've really cut out just a huge swath of what peer support really could be. And I think it's tied into the billion funding structures. I would love to see peer support being able to be accessed by anyone. Um, I want to name that as someone who has provided peer support, I've worked in peer services for five years. I have never received peer support as a formal service because I don't have Medicaid and I don't qualify for it. And so there's no other way in Wisconsin to receive it as a billable service um, the way that the certification is intended to do. And so I think that if I could wave my magic wand, it would be that peer support covers anything. You know, I think there's always space for connection between two humans, whether you've got a shared diagnosis or not, or a shared mental health or substance use lived experience or not, there's always a human level of connection. And then also I'd love to just see it covered under all insurance, all, all healthcare, it would be covered for everyone and accessible to anyone. Whether or not you had health insurance, health insurance shouldn't be a prerequisite to receive services. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. I love that vision. And I love the idea of expanding it to more than just breaking out of just the mental health substance use mold. Because again, oftentimes that we, we find that connection through other means, like our shared diagnosis is not the sole touch point between me and another human. And so I think it's really important that we, we honor the, all the things that we are as humans and, and, and 
lift up those connection points. Mm -hmm, definitely. Any words of wisdom for peers out there doing this work and wanting to get connected and do more? I think it's just to, to keep before deciding like, I wanna be an advocate or I wanna be a really strong leader, take some time to reflect and make sure that you have a concrete understanding of what do those things actually mean to me? Because um, oftentimes people understand advocacy or leadership to mean I'm on every state or national level work group, I'm in a very high position. But as we talk about sometimes in the peer trainings, sometimes just using recovery oriented person-centered language at work is leadership, is advocacy, is affecting change and reform. And so understanding like you can be a leader even if you're not necessarily in a, a top level uh, position in an organization, there's still space for you to affect change and be a leader and advocate in direct service roles and volunteer roles. And so taking some time to understand what do I mean when I'm saying I want to be a leader or advocate and how can I do that in a way that doesn't isn't going to burn me out or isn't going to put me into a space where maybe I'm someone who doesn't really like public speaking. So it doesn't really make sense then to be going to like legislative hearings and trying to speak out if that's not something that you feel like is in your wheelhouse. You don't have to do these huge scale things in order to be an effective leader or advocate. And I think it's really important that as a workforce, we, we understand that. Well said. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this very important topic. Um, I'm sure we're going to be addressing this topic over the next couple of years through the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence because it is so vital. I just really appreciate you joining us and sharing your wisdom with us. Yes, thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, which are funded through cooperative agreements with SAMHSA. The opinions expressed in this recording are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position of SAMHSA or DHHS. Thank you again for joining us on the Encouraging Change podcast. If you are a new listener, please follow us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe to the Great Lakes current YouTube channel to access many more free products and resources just like this. Thank you.